I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. And the metaphor used by both was, believe it or not, zombies. The recent resurgence of zombies, Pride and Prejudice, and Zombies. This zombie book. The zombie survival guide. Zombie frappuccinos. Because of technology. 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 Whether we like it or not, the zombies are coming for us all. Films, books, computer games, comics and TV shows. Historical and mythical zombies. Claims to have proven the scientific truth behind zombification. They're the gruesome cannibalistic monsters of horror and the harmless creatures of children's playground games. They're zombie flash mobs and zombie parades, zombie cocktails and drinks. There's zombie capitalism and zombie corporations. And of course, the zombie apocalypse. They're coming shuffling, inexorably, unthinkingly, to consume us all, to infect us. And there's nothing, it seems, that we can do to stop it. We've all seen the zombie film or TV show. The Walking Dead is one of the most successful TV shows of all time. Or maybe you've just dressed up as a zombie for a Halloween party. You know what a zombie is. Or maybe you don't. Take the following list, for example. Which of these would you consider to be a zombie? A noisy child, a three-legged horse, a wretched dog too weak to bark, a female spirit with a broken neck, the soul of a person caught in a bottle, a person with catatonic schizophrenia expelled from their community, a bewitched slave, a coughing spectre that spreads tuberculosis, an entranced person easily returned to life by eating salt, a figure in the voodoo pantheon of gods. The answer, as you may now be suspecting, is all of the above. The zombie, it turns out, is very difficult to pin down. This list is from Zombies, A Cultural History by Roger Luckhurst. Professor Luckhurst is the Professor in Modern and Contemporary Literature at Burbeck, University of London. As he makes very clear in his book, the story of zombies is long and complicated, and it's wrapped up in a history of violence and subjugation, of slavery and mass slaughter. It's most certainly not a story which begins in the 1960s with George Romero and Night of the Living Dead. Okay, well, I mean, most people think about... um the zombie is a very modern uh, addition to the gothic uh, monster. And they, they, they kind of know that there's Night of the Living Dead, which is 1968, the George Romero film. And they, they might know that there's a 1932 film called White Zombie. And then after that, it get, gets a bit vague. To really understand the zombie, you need to go right back to the 19th century. There are four key stages in the zombie story, each around 50 years apart. There's the modern obsession with zombies today, beginning in and around the early 2000s and continuing up until now. Go back 50 years or so from today, there's Night of the Living Dead and the other Romero zombie films in the 60s and 70s. If you jump back another 50 years to the 1920s and 30s, there's the explosion of interest in zombies in the pulp magazines in the US. And then, back 50 years once more, there are the early encounters of Western writers in the 1880s. The zombie is a creature of the margins. It straddles the world of the living and the dead. But it also comes from the margins of empire. The vampire, the zombie's only real cultural rival, emerged from the edges of Europe in the 19th century, where the territories of the great European powers ended and the Ottoman Empire began. 
The Mummy, incredibly popular in the late 19th and early 20th century, haunted British popular fiction at a time when the British occupied Egypt on the boundaries of a rapidly expanding empire. And in just the same way that Zombie arrived in American popular culture from the margins of a new American empire, from the Caribbean and particularly from Haiti. At the time, the US was rapidly expanding its overseas territories, Cuba, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, and from 1915 to 1934, Haiti. It's this Caribbean history so inescapably linked with slavery and plantations that provides the origins of the zombie. And it's a bloody, horrific past that the zombie character has never fully lost. One of the earliest mentions of the zombie in an English language work is by an Irish-Greek writer. He's a really fascinating character in his own right. A man called Lafcadio Hearn. Uh, who went to the French colony of Martinique and he kept hearing this word zombie with, uh, with, with no E on the end. So, so this phrase zombie, uh, which was part of the patois or creole uh, in Martinique. And he kept asking people, uh, what, what is a zombie? And he kept getting hilariously different answers. So everyone he, he asked, he got a completely different response. Um, you know, his, his maid would say to him, oh, well, obviously, uh, it's, it's a ghost. And somebody else would say, well, that's a, a zombie is a three-legged horse. Uh, or a zombie is um, one of those spirits that you meet on the, the road at night. Or... Oh, they're, they're kind of dead people who also happen to labour in uh, bakeries, in the, in the back room of bakeries. Uh, so he just got increasingly bewildered by this sense of, um, uh, of kind of superstition around this object, and he could never quite pin it down. And then there's William Seabrook, writer, journalist, explorer, occultist, sadomasochist, cannibal. He was an American journalist who made his name mixing with the modernist crowd in Europe and exploring exotic locations and topics like witchcraft and the occult. He wrote about his experiences living with a tribe in West Africa who practiced ritual cannibalism, although much to his disappointment he wasn't allowed to eat any human flesh. So he returned to Paris and purchased some from a morgue and ate it in order to say he was now a cannibal. Most importantly for the story here, however, is his 1929 book The Magic Island, exploring the voodoo practices of Haiti. He um, was, was researching kind of superstitions in, in Haiti and someone mentioned the word zombie and they said, well, if you want to meet one, we'll just take you down the road. There are, there are three down the road right now. And his description of, um, of, of dead men working in cane fields is precisely the origin of uh, the modern zombie because within three years, it's in the film White Zombie in Hollywood. Uh, they refer directly to William Seabrook's work, uh, and then it absolutely takes off. Although there was another very different reason the zombie exploded in popularity at this time. A major cocktail uh, was named The Zombie in the early 1930s, and everyone got blind drunk on that for about 10 years. So that's what really kicked it off in, in America, and the kind of rest is history. William Seabrook's dead men working in cane fields were, of course, not dead, but simply men working in appalling conditions for American sugar companies in what many Haitians would have seen as a return to the slavery of the very recent past. Zombies and slavery are very closely intertwined. Uh, the absolutely horrendous conditions in French, particularly French, uh, but also English um, uh, slave colonies. Um, so they, they, they would transport slaves, the famous Middle Passage, from Africa, West Africa, 
over to uh, the Caribbean to work sugarcane, uh, which was a hugely profitable industry. Uh, and in France in particular, uh, the conditions were so bad in the slave plantations that uh, originally the the laws were that you were had to forcibly convert your slaves uh, from their uh, heathen primitive religion into the Catholic religion in order to save their souls. But they didn't really live long enough to bother doing that. So they just transported whole villages, in a sense, across from West Africa to uh, the Caribbean. And what happened then was a kind of weird synthesis of um, African uh, native beliefs. So it's thought that the word zombie might mean soul in various West African languages. A mix of that with Catholicism, uh, with um, the, the kind of ruling uh, elites' uh, beliefs. So you get these weird synthetic religions. Uh, voodoo is one of them, uh, the most famous, but there's also Santeria in Cuba, uh, and there's um, Obea in Jamaica, and it's from voodoo that you get the idea of the zombie. So zombies and slavery are connected through voodoo, but wherever the zombie crops up, slavery is there too. Look at the famous zombie cocktail. It's made of a blend of fruit juices and rum. The zombie is made out of rum because that's the slave's drink. The slaves were the ones who invented rum from uh, alcohol fermented from sugarcane. It was the only thing they were allowed to drink. So there's a lot of kind of combinations there that go straight back to slave history. Stage two. Pulp fiction. By the 1930s, the zombie had established itself in mainstream popular culture in the US, and the monster became a mainstay of the pulp magazines of this time. This was the golden age of pulp fiction. The pulps were fiction magazines published on cheap pulp paper, and they sold in their millions. They were incredibly popular. The genres that we know today, you know, like science fiction, horror, detective stories, and so on, they all kind of came out of the pulps in one way or another around this time as well. The zombie is particularly associated with American pulp stories. There is a very famous um, pulp magazine called Weird Tales, which started in 1923, which is famously associated with H.P. Lovecraft. But that repeatedly looked for the exotic margins of uh, American imperial culture, so in the Caribbean, and the zombie was the perfect kind of model for this. And they uh, published lots of people uh, who are now largely forgotten, who wrote stories about zombies. Uh, so the two most famous would be Theodore Roscoe, who sold tens of millions of uh, stories in the 1920s and 1930s, completely forgotten now, uh, but wrote a book called uh, Zed is the Zombie, for example. Um, and the other truly amazing writer from that period uh, was Henry Sinclair Whitehead, who um, Lovecraft, very famous now, of course, but Lovecraft said he was the most interesting man he'd ever met. Uh, and he wrote these horrific <laughs> stories about um, slave beliefs uh, and superstitions and ghost stories and hauntings and vengeful narratives whilst being uh, uh, an Episcopal bishop uh, down in um, one of the Caribbean islands that belong to uh, the American state. So even bishops were writing about zombies at this point. This was also the time of early cinema, and directors looking for source material kept a very close eye on the pulp magazines. Stage 3. The Zombie Film 
Early zombie films, like White Zombie mentioned earlier, tended to treat the zombie as an individual who can be controlled by a sorcerer. They use some sort of poison or spell to reanimate and control the zombie. But this isn't really how we tend to imagine zombies today. In modern popular culture, there are zombie hordes. It's a zombie apocalypse, a global contagion with masses of marauding creatures consuming human flesh and infecting everyone they encounter. You know, like the Army of the Dead in Game of Thrones, or the zombie masses in films like World War Z or 28 Days Later. So, somewhere between the 1930s and now, something drastic changed. There are two really influential sources for that. One would be um, the recognition of uh, the living dead as they were found in concentration camps, and this was a major kind of trauma across the West, which still continues the sense of this... Um, just vast numbers being processed uh, and the survivors in this state where many of them were, were so uh, in so far gone uh, into a kind of state of living death that they couldn't be um, rescued, they couldn't be brought back to hell. So that has haunted our imagination ever since. But particularly for American culture, um, the Second World War, of course, was a brief respite and they went straight back into battle um, in the Cold War, they ended up fighting on the Korean Peninsula, uh, and the American army was completely overwhelmed by the strategy of um, the communist peasant army, which was to just simply hurl thousands and thousands and thousands of unarmed uh, peasants across the border to overrun uh, American um, emplacements. And this was a strategy that was hugely expensive in terms of life, you know, that tens of thousands of people were killed. But the Chinese communist thought was that the Americans would be so appalled by their own slaughter um, that they would, in a sense, give up. And it kind of worked for six months, actually, uh, at the beginning of the Korean War. So that sense of, um, we always think of zombies as being these hordes that overrun uh, small American uh, houses or, 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 or emplacements or um, shopping malls, whatever, that sense of being overrun by a mass, a horde that you can't differentiate, uh, is, I think, straight from the Korean War. And in the aftermath of all this comes George Romero's 1968 film Night of the Living Dead, the film that changed how we see zombies forever, even if it didn't technically have any zombies in it. Romero's um, zombie story is actually not a zombie story. I mean, he doesn't use the word zombie at all in that film. Uh, he refers to them as ghouls, which is a North African term, a North African superstition. Uh, and actually what he was doing was adapting um, a vampire story. That's uh, Matheson's I Am Legend, which has been made repeatedly. This is Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. It's a great book, most recently made into a not particularly great, but not terrible film with Will Smith. So that idea of the one surviving human being who's completely menaced by a massive crowd of, in that case, vampires, that was one of the bases for his uh, film. So it's kind of a misrecognition, really. And it's only 10 years later that his follow-up, uh, we know as Dawn of the Dead, um, in fact, that was called Zombie 2 in, when it was released in Italy, and it was funded partly by uh, uh, Dario Argento in, in Italy. So it's only a retrospective sense that this becomes a, a zombie film. Night of the Living Dead, a low-budget, independent film, was a huge success and has remained a classic for a number of reasons. For one, there's... The complete accident of it being released in 1968 at a point of the most profound 
revolutionary turbulence in American culture. Uh, so a sense of having a black hero, again, an accident, uh, he was simply the best actor in um, their group of amateurs. Having a black actor at the center of this and uh, portraying uh, him overthrowing white authority uh, was incendiary and it was shown in um, black ghettos alongside films about slavery uh, and that sense of it having a real political edge was picked up very fast so that by 1970 it was being shown at the Museum of Modern Art and it was being praised as this, as this genuinely radical revolutionary kind of film. So you have a kind of pulp energy that comes out of Romero that also has a major kind of political critique behind it that people really uh, latch onto and it will, it's what gives Romero and what, what gives the zombie uh, metaphor a kind of power for um, filmmakers but also for critics. It's why academics uh, like me get obsessed with zombies, I think. So Romero created a template for the zombie industry that would spring up in the wake of his films. But as with all the best creatures of this type, they change so readily to reflect the times in which they are portrayed. Which brings us up to today. Stage 4. The Contemporary Zombie The 21st century zombie narrative is far more concerned with the globalised world, reflecting fears of pandemics or bioterrorism. So I do think that the zombie begins to change in around um, the late 1990s. And you might also think that that's an obvious moment when we start to use words like um, globalisation and the ideas of the costs of globalisation as well as its benefits. Uh, so I think in the late 1990s, texts like 28 Days Later um, begin to produce uh, a new kind of zombie. I mean, it caused a huge scandal 28 Days Later because it broke the rules, even though there are no rules. It broke the rules because the zombies here were, were running, uh, which had immense kind of energy. They were no longer this shuffling, idiotic crowd, but were kind of feral and driven uh, by this kind of viral rage. And that has been hugely influential, thinking about ideas of contagion. So all of the Resident Evil um, franchise, which is a vast, vast, vast franchise, uh, even more successful as a video game than, than as seven or eight films, um, that is all driven by the idea of contagion. Or more recently again, there's the thinking zombie. So I think the change that has happened in uh, the 2010s is a real interest now in not seeing the zombie as this uh, idiotic mass or horde, although that's still around, but a sense in which what becomes interesting is that the zombies might have a form of consciousness. So what would it like? What would it be uh, like to be on the side of the zombie, not on the side of the survivor. Um, so what is zombie consciousness? Can you have zombie consciousness? Um, lots of philosophers have become very interested in that, and lots of filmmakers have too, uh, trying to explore uh, the idea of the sympathetic zombie, I suppose. Series like I Zombie, you know, a a as its name suggests, the idea of exploring the subjectivity of what it means to be a zombie, and that is kind of done in a tone of, of, of comic... Um, survival um, and then you also get um, things like warm bodies as well which is also about um, someone who is turned into a zombie and then returns back into the human and you've had a whole series of investigations about these um, 
hybrid forms between human and zombie, like The Girl with All the Gifts, which is a very good book and a very bad film. So is there still a link today between the modern zombie and the dead men working in cane fields or the tales encounters by writers well over a century ago? There is a sort of sense of um, an echo of... um, a kind of colonial it's always a colonial metaphor uh, my, my sense of it is that, that the zombie is something that um, does whether it knows it or not speak to us about inequalities of power and um, the rights of colonial powers to exercise life and death decisions on others so some people have talked about contemporary globalization as it's run by multinational corporations as a form of necropolitics, a kind of uh, decision about who is who is worth um, living, who is, who is not worth living and therefore letting die. Um, so even down to a kind of anxiety about, uh, we know that the next World Cup in Qatar, uh, all of those uh, buildings that the game is going to be played in are being built by zombie workers in effect, by, by um, guest workers who work in terrible conditions, who are um, dying in a, in a really vast rate. And the politics of that is a necropolitics. It is a kind of politics of zombification. Skip forward 50 years into the future, and it seems unlikely the zombie will have disappeared. Like all the best horror creations, the zombie is adaptable and malleable. It reflects our fears and anxieties. The zombie is always us. But while the zombie may take on other forms, may represent new fears, that link back to slavery and power and control is there, underneath the surface. Perhaps the zombie will exist for as long as these issues of inequality and imbalances of power remain in the world. That may be a while. That's it for episode 12 of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. I am very excited to announce that this is the first Words to That Effect episode as part of the Headstuff podcast network. The show is now part of headstuff.org, a fantastic hub of creative content on culture, history, film, music, and lots more. And the Headstuff podcast network is made up of 20 great Irish podcasts. So go check them out and find your new second favorite podcast. Special thanks this week to Professor Roger Luckhurst. There is lots more about zombies in his really fantastic book, Zombies, A Cultural History. I'll put links to the book, to Professor Luckhurst's bio, and to his other upcoming publications, such as the Cambridge Companion to Dracula, uh, on the Words to That Effect website, which is wttepodcast.com. Music this week was by two fantastic Irish groups, Overhead, The Albatross, and The Jimmy Cake. Links to their work are at WTTE Podcast as well. You can also follow the show on Facebook and I'm on Twitter at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Finally, just to let you know, this is the penultimate episode of Season 1 of Words to That Effect. There will be one more episode, a Christmas special, in collaboration with the podcast Down Below the Reservoir, which I'm really excited about. It's going to take a little bit longer to make, so it'll be out in three weeks' time, not two. So that's Monday, December the 18th, and then I'm taking a break for Christmas. I'll give you some more details about Season 2 at the end of the next episode. But until then, thanks for listening.